Welcome home and welcome to the Mount Carmel podcast. Today you'll be hearing from Pastor Ted Hill, the program director of the Canadian Lutheran Bible Institute. He'll be teaching on the topic of the trustworthiness of Jesus. First Corinthians 12 has been really important to me over the p- past few years in terms of how we see ourselves, how we see others, and uh, what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to share with. Um, so I want to read from 1 Corinthians 12, verses uh, 14 down to uh, 26. Really important, and particularly verse 22 is really um, really foundational for me over the past couple of years. It's, this always sits with me. So as we, as we think about how we see people, and it sounded like you shared a lot of different stories. I know in our group we shared a bunch of different stories and in the challenges and um, in how, how we respond to that, how we act on how, we, uh, how we're called to see people and how we actually see people. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, for the body does not consist of one member but of many. That fits with what Tim just said, right? <laughs> If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So that's one aspect of how we see ourselves. So from kind of uh, what I see as a shame perspective, I'm less than because I'm not this. So that's a, a perspective of how we see ourselves in, in, in the body. So seeing ourself and then seeing others. So it continues on in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again to the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are, if anybody's following along, what does it say next? indispensable, (laughs) not just important, and not just occasionally valuable, indispensable. And the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, that phrase there, that's an evaluation term. The parts of the body that seem weaker to who? (laughs) To Ted, as he looks around, seem to be weaker. Jesus goes, hold it, Ted. (laughs) What you think is weaker is actually indispensable. Fascinating. And then he continues on. And on the, those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we think less honorable, again, another evaluative term, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater, <laughs> I always think, funny. what parts of the body are the unpresentable ones, I don't know. Because we know he's talking about genitalia there, right? That's, that's what he's hinting at. So what part, I, I, I haven't studied that, nor do I want to. So we'll just move on. Ted thought out loud again. Anyways, we, give, <laughs> uh, we treat with greater modesty, which, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, Who gave the honor? God did, right? Uh, That there may be no division in the body. (laughs) There's no division in the body. But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So there's there's that sense of seeing ourself from a place of shame or seeing others, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, from a place of self-righteousness, God is kind of wiping that away and causing us to see differently. How do we see? And so if we've evaluated something weaker or less honorable or less presentable, Jesus is calling us to see differently, to see differently, and he calls us to do that. 
From your groups, is there any of you uh, from your groups that want to share something that you feel that's quite important to share? Because uh, there's lots of good stuff there, and I don't want to miss that. Um, uh, there's a microphone there that's, uh, is that Trey? Uh, Jacob. Jacob, okay. There's a couple of big guys that look sort of like you. One of them's Trey, and there's another, no, who's another guy? older brother named Sam. Uh, yeah, 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 that's who I'm thinking of too, yeah. So. Jacob, you said, right? Yeah. Jacob. Jacob has a microphone to share, and I'd love to hear a couple of those things before we move on to Luke 14. Who wants to share? Put up your hand. I like awkward silence, so. Kirk for the win. I'll, I'll talk since nobody else volunteered here, but... Um, we just talked about different ways that people show compassion. And uh, uh, one family that includes uh, born children and includes uh, children with a lot of different needs. And I thought that was a really good example of um, how uh, someone new to the family trying to uh, see the compassion in that family. and and. Uh, and then I did a kind of a humorous one because uh, I'm in seventh or eighth grade and uh, at that time in history and in location, uh, boys did not come up and put their arm around another boy, whatever, you, right. you were at arm's length. Right, yeah. It was sort of like pre-COVID COVID for us, you know? <laughs> uh, if, you had, if we had won the state tournament, we would have solemnly shaken hands perhaps, you know? But uh, so this kid comes up to us in the lunch line, to me and my friend, puts his arm around both of us and says, you're my buddies, I want to have lunch with you guys. And um, somehow we got, somehow we summoned what we knew about God's word and we did not punch him in the, we did not deck him, lay him on the floor. We just said, you can have lunch with us, but uh, don't do that. <laughs> And that was as far as we could go at that point. Wow, yeah, that's, I, I, it's, that's intriguing because I've, I've noticed that amongst uh, young people, and especially young men, uh, that they can be very affectionate towards one another, and it's simply, truly affectionate. It's amazing. Notice that CLBI. Christian's a big hugger, yeah, right? Uh, and and that's, that's really common now, yeah. Yeah, that's profound. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Anybody else? Other stories of uh, how you see people, ideally, honestly. Thanks. I enjoyed them when they shared that she works at the VFW and that older gentlemen come, they're older veterans, and they go there for social, but they sit there by themselves. They sit there by themselves, and she huh. takes the time to see them, to listen to them, and I thought that was very, very yeah. good. To be seen and heard, that's a huge beginning to the whole idea of belonging, yeah. Amen, thanks for sharing that. How many of you uh, intentionally uh, kind of pay attention to the margins, those sitting off to the side or those who kind of exclude themselves? How many of you kind of do that? And yeah, there's a bunch that kind of inherently do that. That's something that has become important to me too, to see uh, those who self-exclude for whatever reason, yeah. Other thoughts or stories from, from the groups? Is uh, sitting in the um, fan bus, we're gonna go to the basketball game, and uh, uh, she naturally didn't sit by me because I was a little creep, and she was, uh, she was the uh, soybean queen of the year, which was, uh, so uh, soybean queen comes in and she sits with her friends, and I'm sitting, I don't know where I'm sitting, but courted in the middle, and then the girl returning from reform school shows up. Everybody turns quiet, silent, mm. walks in, and she just looks at us like, you can't, you can't do anything to me. And she didn't say a whole lot, but she moves to the back and she just glares at us, all the rest. She sits way in the back. And then the bus is ready to start and She's doing her goony laugh, laughing at nothing. And then my sister goes all the way from the front of the bus to the back. We take off and then I hear two goony laughs from the back. 
and I thought my sister uh, has just ruined her social standing in life. And then I, when I, by the time I got home, I told mother about it, I think, and mother was so proud of her, and then years later I remembered, and I thought, that was a fabulous thing to do. Yeah. And uh, told my kids about that too, I remember, when they were teens, so. But I thought that was a little bit of a compassionate heart that you don't see too often. Well, and you said something really key, willing to ruin social status, that, that, is, that is a truly Christ-like thing. Jesus did that all the time. How many times did he uh, let the unclean near him, right? He ruined his social status all the time, and it's some of the most beautiful things that, that can happen. Yeah. yeah. So at the college where I work at, you have the faculty, you have the administration, you have those, those staff members, or the faculty and staff, and students definitely, you know, you want to have lunch if you can with the president of the university. You want to, if the professor's in the room, mm -hmm. you want to be with the professor. And yet, mm -hmm. and yet, there's other employees who are all the people who aren't on the official payroll. They're the ones who are the support staff, who clean the rooms, who tend to the all the other things to make it go. And so often they're, they're overlooked. Yeah. And yet, it's really great when you see either a faculty member or a staff member or a student who actually spends time talking to the, the servers in, in that regard and spending time with them. And you see these servers, they light up. And, 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 and it's just, and it's different people, but they see them. And when, when these servers are seen, it, it's entirely different. And then I think too often we want to sit with the president yeah. and not have a conversation with the janitor. And yet the janitor is doing really amazing work. So. Yeah, yeah and the janitor has, has a profound story in the, and God is at work in that janitor and God is at work through that janitor and uh, not just the president. Yeah. If we create a, if, if, if God's creating a culture of seeing one another well, uh, it, it shifts everything. Yeah. And that's, and, and, and yeah, to kind of shift from this parable to the next parable, it's the, and that's what I'm calling the language of belonging, is belonging happens when we see one another well. When we, and, we, and when we do well to confront how we don't see well sometimes, and uh, I think we shared some of those stories amongst one another when it's hard to see and we don't know how to, or we're unavailable, or our schedules are busy. <laughs> Because a busy schedule is a high mark in our culture, right? It means that we're not sucking away from society, but we're contributing. And heaven forbid do we suck away at society. We have to contribute, otherwise you're a terrible citizen of the country. Canada, North America, it's all the same. And so busyness really subverts uh, our, our availability to see others and, and be able to do what Jesus is pointing out uh, a good neighbor does a good neighbor becomes uh, in available, uh, willing, willing to, to. The overnight part is striking me today uh, uh, that he stayed overnight in that inn and then he went back to what he was responsible for as well in the rest of his life. But he saw and he saw with compassion and he responded to that. So God is constantly kind of um, I like to, uh, uh, I've tried to absolutely obliterate the word busy in my vocabulary, uh, and I want to use the word full instead, because full is a better word than busy. To me, busy means hectic, striving, um, and unavailable. Full means there's margin, <laughs> and full means I have some choice in that matter. Uh, so let's have our schedules full, because we're meant to be responsive and do stuff. <laughs> we're created to do stuff, but not overdo stuff. And so we need to be available to see. Luke 14, let's go to that. Luke 14, is, it's intriguing. It's sort of, it's sort of parable-ish. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a parable story, uh, like the Good Samaritan, but it's, it, it's, it, anyways, we'll, we'll get into it in a second. <laughs> I love this one. This is one of my favorite right now. But, 
So one of the key things of why I brought this up in terms of uh, looking at um, the parables as language of belonging is that parable, Jesus' parables make room for belonging. If there's no room in a particular space, in a particular group, in a particular community, it's really hard to belong, and so Jesus wants to break closed communities, closed groups, closed minds to other people. He wants to break those open. And when Jesus makes room for people, it can be uncomfortable, and that's a challenge. And again, whenever Jesus makes us uncomfortable, something's going on for us that we need to look at, that we need to work through, and that we know that Jesus is trustworthy. He's never being malicious when when a parable makes us uncomfortable. He's never going to shame us, ever. That is not in his nature, it will never be in his nature but he will make us uncomfortable. (laughs) And that happens uh, a fair bit. And we're in a kind of a cultural moment that is very uncomfortable. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, The US and Canada are in a very different cultural moments, but uh, kind of similar context. But Jesus unsettles cultural norms and he does that here in in Luke 14 quite profoundly. And, uh, I wrote in here, uh, not many of us wake up in the morning waiting for the email reminder in our schedule that Jesus is going to unsettle us. (laughs) We're not looking forward to anything unsettling, especially cultural norms, but Jesus did that very profoundly. Like I said before, he, uh, he, he messed up his social status a lot. He, he became un, ritually unclean a lot. He did that all the time. Uh, when he touched a leper, when he touched the funeral pyre, when, when he entered into sinners' homes, uh, he becomes unclean all the time. And that's really important because he was unsettling cultural norms because he comes with a very different uh, kingdom principle and that is belonging bringing people into that place of belonging. And so how do we invite people to belong? So this parable kind of ambushes. It's, it's one of those um, subversive uh, parables and the lead up to it especially. And so I'll talk a little bit about this um, and a little bit the, but the connection for me right now and then we'll spend some time just kind of reading it over on our own and seeing what Jesus is unsettling in you. Maybe you want to journal about that. We'll do that a little bit later. So this parable of the wedding feast and the great banquet. And the first one's not really a parable, but um, so let's start in verse 14 of chapter 14, kind of the setup of what's going on here. Uh, Because (laughs) Jesus uh, uh, got himself into trouble right off the bat. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, not just a Pharisee, but a ruler of the Pharisees, a big dog. Yeah, (laughs) I don't want to put down the president of Grandview, but it's kind of like he went to the president's house and a janitor came. But it's not. I'm not saying that the president's a ruler of Pharisees, but the the disparity of power here. So they were watching him carefully. They were always watching him carefully. And behold, a man, uh, behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Hmm. I don't know if they put their lip out or not. But anyways, then he took him and healed him and sent him away. (laughs) And he said to them, which of you? having a son or an ox that has fallen. I never noticed the son before. I've read this like three times recently. I always think of the ox falling into the well, but as a son falls into the well too, that's my worst fear. Anyways, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into the well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So that's kind of the setup. Now he told a parable. I guess that's why it's a parable. It doesn't really sound like a parable, but he he says he told them a parable. Um, He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed, Jesus is always paying attention, when he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in the place of honor 
lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. And we'll talk about shame, honor in a minute. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pause for a second here. So first, first century Middle Eastern culture, uh, I think it might even be still, is honor-shame-based. And it was very significant. You would avoid anything that would bring shame upon to your, onto your household, your oikos, which is usually a number of families uh, living, working, doing life together. You don't want to bring any shame whatsoever because when your shame status goes down, you lose access to things. And, and, it's, and how many of you know what happens if you uh, contract leprosy? Where do you go? A leper colony, right? Yeah, you're ousted from everything. You lose all benefit to your community, everything. The ability to get food for yourself, make money, work, go to synagogue, none of that is accessible when shame status comes to its lowest place, which would be uh, leprosy or, or large cultural sins. You would lose all all access to anything. So you want to avoid anything that would lower your status and you want to do anything that would raise your status. So honor is the goal. And in, in, in first century culture, there was very limited resources, very limited access to anything. And so you had to be very careful. And so it's so fun when Jesus kind of just bashes right through that shame, honor, uh, cultural norm. He just did that all the time. So you do anything. And so Jesus speaks this very intentionally because of what he says next. So when, when Jesus is saying this, all the Pharisees and the ruler of the Pharisee, he'd be doing this. Good stuff, Jesus. I really like that. That is brilliant wisdom, Rabbi. Thank you. And I think they're all doing this. And then Jesus continues. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And I could see the Pharisees doing this. Because he just flipped honor, shame, culture right on its head. And he made a way, an uncomfortable way, for the discarded, the excluded, to belong. Through the people that have the power to do it and will refuse to. Because to invite the crippled, the lame, the poor, would be to bring shame and lower their status. And Jesus said, you need to do this. This is the kingdom way. And you won't receive a reward in the now, which is always what they wanted to do, is do something that would have some sort of return. <laughs> RTI, return on investment. <laughs> ROI, return on investment. Anyways, I think there's some banking people here. <laughs> Better get that right. So, Jesus is punching a hole in the things that create exclusion, that keep people from belonging, and he's turning it upside down, and he does it constantly. And he didn't just preach that. He lived that out constantly. He was invested in the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, those who were discounted and discarded, and everything in between. Um, one of the things... I better pay attention to my notes <laughs> or it'll get really bizarre eventually. Uh, uh, all right. Jesus punches a hole in this cultural norm and he unsettles it. And, uh, and so Jesus is really asking us some questions about how we invite people to belong. 
And it's somewhat similar to how we see people, but how do we then, and, and, that's, and that Luke 10 is particularly how we see people who Jesus brings to us. That, that the Good Samaritan didn't go and find um, uh, that man on the road. It, it, it happened, and he was in a space to see with compassion. And so what about those we intentionally go to invite to belong? And that's what this is about. Jesus is flipping that. Don't do it this way. Do it this way. So how do we invite people to belong? That's an important question to wrestle with, to think about. Um, I'm not going to spend any time on that, but, uh, uh, but take some time when you do to think about how you invite people to belong. I want to jump into kind of the unsettling of things and, and some of the things that I am going through right now and trying to understand and thought I understood it and don't. And, and there's big picture stuff here about important aspects of our discipleship and particularly the uncomfortable stuff. Um, in your booklet here I wrote kind of in that second part here on Luke 14. This parable has the ability to ambush our unrecognized and unacknowledged entitlements. Entitlement's an interesting word. It might be a trigger. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm going through a lot of stuff right now and realizing how much entitlement I have. Sometimes we call it white, uh, white privilege and that's something that Jesus is punching a hole in and it's really important to recognize that. But I'll talk about that in a minute. But let's ask the Holy Spirit to have this parable uncover, be a source of uncovering our entitlements because we have them. And Jesus uh, creates uncomfortable situations where uh, he wants us to look at them. And again, he never shames us and he is not malicious, but he does subvert us sometimes. Um. I, I don't know how many of you know um, uh, kind of some of the significant news from Canada right now. Um, Canada's history with Aboriginal peoples has been really awful in, in a very different way that some of the history with uh, Aboriginals in, in, in the United States has been. Uh, it's, it's awful as well. Uh, but in Canada, it's kind of, things are kind of opening up and in shocking ways, uh, and it started with, uh, I'm not sure exactly what the date is, around a month ago, maybe six weeks. Um, uh, brief history, how many of you know a little bit of the history of Aboriginal people and the Canadian government and residential schools, a few people? Yeah, and so, okay, so um, the Indian Act was in the 1800 and something. Uh, actually I might have the date. Um, no, it's even older than that. Um, and so uh, they created residential schools, uh, handed them off to uh, churches, um, Anglican Church, United Church, which is kind of Methodist and Presbyterian together in 1925 in Canada, became the United Church, and the Roman Catholic Church, which was the large majority of these residential schools. And there, there's always been horrific stories of things that happened there and kind of a horrific foundation. I'll read a quote that's quite shocking that came from a government official in 1910. And, but there's all kinds of stories of brutality and, and abuse and all kinds of stories about children killed in these, in these residential schools. Um, and, and sometimes quite intentionally and grotesquely and in, in a very evil way, run by a church. And so um, these were stories. Um, recently they've found, and it's, it's just gonna grow like crazy, and it kind of gets, in Kamloops in BC, uh, they first found um, a large graveyard of unmarked graves of uh, 215 children that were buried there, unmarked, beside a school. I went to a residential school, LCBI in Outlook. We didn't have a graveyard beside the school. It's just not normal to have a graveyard beside a school. With 215 unmarked graves, it's just like, <gasps> and it just kind of gets you in your gut. What in the world happened? These stories are true. It's like, ah. Uh, and they're finding these all over the place. There was one in southern Saskatchewan, or in Saskatchewan, I don't think it was southern Saskatchewan, 
with 760 some unmarked graves and they're finding these more and more and more. It's just gonna, it's just gonna uh, ambush us over and over again. And 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 it's just unbelievably painful and and we don't know what to do about it. I don't know what to do, but I don't know how to respond. I just sort of shiver and, and kind of shut down. But it's really opening up a lot of things that I need to respond to in, in terms of my attitudes. I work with Aboriginal men, so I think that I've dealt with this. I haven't. I haven't. I, there's, there's all kinds of... Um, I, I'm, I'm going with the working definition right now of uh, Jesus is confronting my racist tendencies. It's really hard to say you're a racist because who wants to be a racist? Nobody does because <laughs> racist is bad. But we have racist tendencies and those racist tendencies exclude people significantly. It really is a cultural norm that Jesus is digging into and we don't like it. <laughs> we don't like it, right? Minnesota's been a lightning rod for paying attention to racist tendencies, right? Very much a lightning rod and I think... The police officer was just sentenced like the day before I got here. I was wondering, uh oh, <laughs> it, it better be significant enough that riots don't happen. But when riots happen, that says something's happening. I think it's wrong to riot, but rioting happens because something's going on. I don't know what to do with this, Jesus. <laughs> Stick my head in the sand, run away, ignore. But Jesus doesn't let me. And again, he's not shaming me. He's not being malicious, but he's saying, Ted, you've got to pay attention to this. Something's shifting. People don't belong. People feel excluded. People are excluded. There's intentionality in it. It's systemic and all those things that where I'm, I'm probably hitting all kinds of buttons and triggers among us. And I, I am. But how do we respond to that? How do we become people who are willing to let that Jesus crack open our cultural norms so that we can have others belong. Jesus did something really interesting to me about a year ago. I was up uh, talking to a friend, a friend of mine, she's a um, sociocultural anthropology professor. (laughs) I just love saying that, that's quite the title. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Long, a neat lady. Met her on a plane from Toronto a couple years ago, hilarious. (laughs) I met a lawyer on a plane this time. Anyways, another story, we had a great conversation. Anyways, my wife and I have become quite good friends with her and her husband, but she's she's doing a a lengthy study um, on systemic racism and from her perspective, she's looking at one particular thing and I went up and did an interview uh, with her um, on that and uh, a bunch of questions. And on my way back, I was driving south of Edmonton and I live really close to Musquachis four nations, uh, four Cree nations, Samson, uh, Samson, Louisville, Ermanskin, and Montana. You guys know them. Molly and I did some, did some stuff out there and beautiful people and lots of tragic stories. Anyways, so um, I was driving home and I saw this car up in front of me on the highway with kind of a, a bent-in wheel and it was really dirty. My immediate response, my immediate thought was, oh, there's a res car, a reservation car. That was my immediate thought, immediate evaluation assumption. And as I was, dri- I was driving a little faster and God said to me, not, not verbally, but in my spirit, it was very clear, God said, do not look at who's driving that car, Ted. Do not confirm that assumption, Ted. Yeah, and so I just kept driving. And honestly, I did not look, and I'm, I'm thankful that, that I didn't, because I was really tempted. And that was, and I've done so much work. And boom, there, my racist tendency just fires back. Yeah, stupid res car. What's going on, Ted? Just beat myself. Jesus doesn't do that. I do that. But he's opening something up to pay attention, to pay attention to what is happening there. What do we do? A friend of mine, uh, oh, I, just, I just love Lance. Lance Odegaard, uh, he'd be a good guy to have come down. May not be available for a couple years yet. His wife is going through uh, midwifery school, so he doesn't go very far right now. Uh, but he, amazing guy. Um, he, 
He, sent, he, he has this um, ministry called Unstucking. So Lance wrote this, and uh, he, he's a brilliant man with words and, 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 and reads well and has a great deal of integrity. So he wrote this um, on January, January, June 21st, which in Canada, it's Na- National Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada. Um, so he wrote this, it's National Indigenous Peoples Day here in Canada. The weeks that have followed the discovery of the remains of 215 children buried at the former Kamloops Residential School have been full of fresh grief and fresh reckonings for what's been buried over in this country. The stories and warnings from elders about the 139 residential schools have long been ignored. So now as, these, as new investigations are launched, the number of children discovered will only increase and with this, more opportunities to be confronted with the truth and deepen efforts at decolonization. Far from ancient history, the last residential school closed in 1996. It is that recent. And they were mandatory until 1969. Uh, if you've ever studied this, there's something called the 60s scoop, where almost all uh, indigenous Aboriginal children were taken, literally ripped from their parents' arms to be forced to go into these residential schools. And uh, in a second, I'll read the quote about what that was all about. Uh, But much of this history wasn't included in the Canadian history education I received, Lance says. I'm grateful that the glaring omissions in my education are not as obvious in my children's. They are teaching me. And so he shared uh, uh, a little bit more about this and, and gave some questions. He always gives um, a question, a quote, and a poem in his weekly emails. They're amazing. Um, but um, this quote from Duncan Campbell Scott, the Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs in 1910, and this is what kind of shaped it up until 1996. It is readily acknowledged that Indian children lose their natural resistance to illness by habituating so closely in the residential schools and that they die at a much higher rate than in the villages. But this alone does not justify a change in the policy of the department, which is geared towards, listen to this, a final solution of our Indian problem. That was written in 1910. That was years before Hitler said that, right? It's just like, it's chilling to read. This is from a government official. And we don't really know this. It's chilling and heart-wrenching to see what happened. And then the hopefulness. He has this quote. Our only chance at dismantling racial injustice is being more curious about its origins than we are worried about our comfort. I'll read that again. Our only chance at dismantling racial injustice is being more curious about its origins than we are worried about our comfort. And that's where the unsettling nature of this parable comes in. (laughs) Because the Pharisees were worried about their comfort in their status And Jesus is punching a hole in that because their worry about their status and their comfort created a vast divide of injustice towards those in desperate need of belonging. Jesus wants us to belong. and He wants us to be part of bringing others in. And sometimes the gates are pretty shut and we don't even know it. I know it yet and I still don't know it yet. And that's the journey I'm on right now. And I don't know what to do with this. I don't, I, 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 I'm moved as I think about it and talk about it, but not quite enough to change some of the patterns in my life. I will still go back. Well, I work with Aboriginal men. I'm learning their stories and helping them. But that's still not me being a person that welcomes them to belong as part of my circle, my world. It's so difficult. Molly's here. I remember, can I share, I can't remember exactly what you said either, but I remember when we did this week of ministry tour uh, in Musquachese, 
and what you said in chapel afterwards, and I can't remember the exact thing, it was just like, it, it was almost the sense of, it's not right just to go there and leave. We attempt to, to understand uh, how to respond to Jesus, right? What's Jesus up to and how can we join him in that? And, and you go for five days and then go home back to normal comfort and, and yeah, to be unsettled. And that, and that was so profound to me, the, the sense of it, the unsettled nature you had, even though I couldn't remember the words that you said, I remember very distinctly the experience and that was, that was so uh, beautiful and profoundly wise and mature. Young Molly Johnson, soon to be Hoff. Molly Hoff, that works. It does. Man, I love you guys. Oh, so good. So how is Jesus using this parable and all the other parables to unsettle us? Not with shame, not with malicious intent, but with purposeful kingdom intent to open us up to change how we invite people to belong. I want to invite us to just spend some quiet time, not in groups this time, just some quiet time and read that passage in, in Luke 14 again and then just silent prayer or journaling and we'll do that for, let's say, 10 minutes and then we'll jump into Luke 15 as we close. Let's do that for 10 minutes. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things he said to, to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to them, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, culturally, I'm sure it makes more sense. But it's still funny. Just look at the field. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. <laughs> Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife and therefore cannot come. Okay, that's... Legitimate. The other ones are weird. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. Interesting, hey? And said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes and the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, and this is interesting, sir, what you have commanded has been done and there's still room. In other words, they responded. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, and this is the phrase that struck me just now, that my house may be filled. <laughs> Jesus wants his house filled. There's so much passion there that the house will be filled. And then a very um, grievous statement here. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. It's not that he doesn't want them there. They won't come. Self-exclusion. Belonging, invited, seeing. Now searching, searching. Exclusion starts with us. When Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, it also follows that if we don't love ourselves, we will not love others well. If we believe we are excluded, it's hard to invite others into a place of belonging. It is in this tension that we need gospel. We need good news. So we know some of the uh, we probably know fairly off by heart uh, the parable formerly known as the prodigal son that is the parable of uh, 
two lost sons. It's in the context of, it is funny, Jesus uh, in, in Luke 15, one, he's, uh, he talks about how the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, <laughs> bashing these, uh, these cultural norms uh, wide open caused for an opening. There's some ekbalon happening there, some casting out of the norms and bringing forth of people who have been excluded. They, drawn, they drew near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then verse three, it says, so he told them this parable. <laughs> and so it's kind of, uh, it's a parable in three parts. And we know the first parable. It's the parable of the lost sheep, or the first part of the parable, I like to say. Parable of the lost sheep. One out of the hundred is lost, and so the shepherd, the owner, goes and search for it. Search for it? Words are hard. Searches for it. And when he finds it, he rejoices, he celebrates, he lets everybody know he's found it. There's, there's this sense of announcement, this proclamation that the lost has been found. It's important. The second one, so that I, I think you, you may notice kind of it's one out of 100, and then it's one out of 10 for the second thing of lost things is that a coin of 10 has been lost. And so she searches the whole house, lights a lamp, sweeps every corner and finds the coin and tells her friends she's found it. I don't think I've ever done that. <laughs> Obviously, this is something really valuable and important, it's quite likely something of a dowry or a headdress. I don't know, Russ is a smart guy, ask him. <laughs> He's gonna get me, I know it. Um, and so it's found, and there's rejoicing after significant searching. And then we have the parable of the two lost sons. And let's read that afresh. Pretend you've never heard it before, okay? And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, <laughs> Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. <laughs> I always love when you see the began to something. Um, have you ever noticed when Peter was sinking, it said he began to sink? How <laughs> do you begin to sink? Anyways, tangent, he began to be in need. Yeah, no kidding. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, <laughs> he said, Oh, how many, of my friends, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he had a plan. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt <laughs> found everywhere. He felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no, wor no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't finish it. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. That is a really, really important phrase. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and ask what these things meant. What does this mean? Luther wrote this. No, I'm just kidding. What these things meant. 
And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back, safe and sound. But he was angry, refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. I love that. But he answered his father, look! (laughs) Didn't say dad, he said, look! These many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours... (laughs) who has devoured your property with prostitutes. We don't know if he did, but the son made a judgment anyways, right? It just said reckless living earlier. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What was the son's, older son's response? We don't know. We don't know. Exclusion starts with us. He very much excluded himself and needed to hear something. He excluded himself. Recognizing how we exclude ourselves will recognize, will help us recognize how we knowingly or unknowingly exclude others. This parable that we know so well is meant to sit in us and jump to life when the Holy Spirit needs to, especially when we are self-excluding ourselves. Think about what the younger son thought of his own life. He excluded himself for various reasons and purposes. What was the evaluation of his life or worth or purpose? What moved him to decide to demand his inheritance before his father's death so that he could do, go and do what he wanted? Did he also miss what, who his father was at home too? I think so. If he knew who his father was, he wouldn't have self-excluded himself. That's a funny phrase anyways. He wouldn't have, we'll just say excluded himself. He wouldn't have done that. So he went off and he came to himself. Something of a recognition, a revelation, a realization began to happen. And he got it wrong at first, right? Because what was he going to do? He was going to try to pay back what he, um, what he, uh, what does it say there? He uh, um, 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 squandered all the money he squandered. He wanted to find a way to pay it back, get in the right books with his father, So that was going on. So his evaluation of his life and worth and purpose uh, began to shift. And that didn't happen till the father truncated uh, his confession. He didn't let him finish. He didn't let him try to pay back his father. And the father who had run to him, which culturally, I I think many of you might know, culturally, older men don't run. They only walk. <laughs> they don't do this big embrace thing and, and they definitely don't publicly welcome back a dishonored or ashamed person of the family because that brought shame on his family, the whole honor-shame thing again. But he did, and he did it extravagantly. A robe, a ring of sonship, comfort for his feet that had probably been sore and burnt. He evaluated himself, but then he heard something. He heard this proclaimed over him. He heard that he belonged, and he knew it. It wasn't just, glad you're you're not dead. (laughs) That wasn't the father's response. Glad you're not dead. Get back to the field, you dope. Now, he didn't do that. It was unbelievably extravagant. It was extravagant. We're talking more about extravagance tomorrow. And so that was proclaimed over him. It was announced over him. It was done to him. The son did nothing but experience it. The older son, he self-excluded. What drove his expectations? What was going on there? What do you think he needed then to finish this parable? (laughs) What do you think he needed And that's really important. What did he need to hear? 
And do you think that the Pharisees who were grumbling at Jesus and the reason why he told these parables, do you think that they heard Jesus? Because Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, not the sinners and tax collectors who had drawn near to him. <laughs> they knew at that moment that Jesus welcomed them. They knew that he be- they, they belonged with him. The Pharisees didn't know it yet. And so how did they process hearing that announcement? You're always with me. Everything I have is yours. Did Jesus want the Pharisees to know they belonged as well? He did. He had incredible compassion for the Pharisees in these confrontations. And that's really important. He wanted them to know God's grace that had come in his son. The father announces announces belonging and invites belonging. What do you think the father said at this party, this celebration? (laughs) The servant obviously knew because the older son called the servant over, what's going on? What does this mean? (laughs) And the servant quickly recounted what was happening in this celebration. So all that were gathered at this celebration We don't have any details about who, but there was a celebration, a fatted calf was killed, it was large. It wasn't just the father and the son and a few overhearing servants. There was a gathering and there was an announcement. What is good news? It's an announcement, it's not an idea. It's an announcement of what God does, how God sees us, how God brings us into himself. And he announces that my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and was found, and we had to kill this fatted calf to celebrate that he is my son. And Jesus is flipping the honor shame again and again and again, announcing honor to one who would have lived his life in shame. And we, when we exclude ourselves, when we acknowledge where exclusion comes from, we need to hear that announcement as well that you are a son, a daughter of the Father. We need to hear that over and over again. In our morning devotion um, from Ephesians 1.5, this adoption from before the beginning of time, he had set his mind on us to, to adopt us as his children. And that is an extraordinary gift to hear that announced over us. I love, uh, I love uh, the Lutheran baptismal liturgy. <laughs> You're a child of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ. Forever! <laughs> it's an announcement! <laughs> and we need to hear that over and over again. Romans 8.16 tells us the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We need to hear it over and over and over again. It needs to be announced because... In our discomfort, in our mistakes, in our sin, in our failings, in our shame, in our guilt, we exclude ourselves and try to work it off. I've served you. I want to feel better. <laughs> we do that usually quite quietly to ourselves, or we try to push it away. But Jesus wants to come and announce over us. I was, al- I was dead and I'm alive again. I was lost and I'm found, and that is all the time, not just once, <laughs> all the time, all the time. He announces over us that we belong. That's good news. Let's pray. Jesus, you are passionate about having your house filled. This is your determination. You are bent on saving us, and you're not going to Step back from that, you are determined. You want us to hear over and over again that we were dead and are alive, lost and found, broken and, and wrestling around with pigs in a pig pen, out in the fields working our butts off to prove that your grace wasn't wasted on us and yet we miss it all together sometimes. And you come out to us You walk out to us. You entreat us. You want to announce that you are always with us in everything 
that you have is ours. You want us to hear this, know this, be filled with it, respond to it, live in it, and hear it over and over again, the announcement that we belong. Jesus, show us daily that we belong so that we can daily go out into others' lives to announce that they belong because of you, Jesus, because you spoke it. Because of your death and resurrection, we can know we belong. And not just an idea, a deep in our guts knowing, kind of like the Splunk Nitsumai. Everything in us moved profoundly in the knowing. Thank you, Jesus. May we see each other differently each day. May we know the gift of you unsettling our cultural norms so that we can have the gates open wide to invite others in and to know that we belong. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on the Mount Carmel podcast. We hope that you'll join us again for the next episode when Ted continues his teaching series on the trustworthiness of Jesus. Thank you.